Welcome back. You are listening to Missed Apex Formula E Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Lee Mace, and let's get all charged up and ready to talk about Formula E. And joining the panel today, we have Chris Stevens. How are you doing today, Chris? Happy for Formula E to be back? Yeah, Christina, I feel fantastic that Formula E is back. One of my favorite series, and now I get to actually talk about the race on a podcast that we do. Oh, very excited for this. Joining us as well, we have Brad Philpot. How are we doing, Brad? Evening, Christina. This is exciting because I didn't expect to be able to do this one, but I rushed home from exciting motorsport day to watch some more motorsport and just about managed it. So looking forward to talking about this one. Fabulous. And our final member of the panel today is Matt Trumpets. How are we doing today, Matt? I see your attack mode and I raise you a safety car. Fantastic. We are all charged up and ready to get into things. Now, because Formula E is special, they do qualifying on the same day as the race. So there are a couple of things to talk about qualifying-wise before we get into the E-Pre, starting with Porsche being on pole. They've had some pretty interesting results as far as that goes. Yeah, this is really important. I I feel like Verline getting pole position is a big statement about Uh, Porsche's abilities for this season now it's only the first race so we shouldn't get too ahead of ourselves and Porsche has had some weird kind of Mexico only uh, brilliant performances Um, but when you consider their form from last season in qualifying this is a marked improvement when uh, Verline was in Mexico City last year he qualified 10th and finished second and both of his wins from Diria uh, the the next two rounds came from like ninth and fifth as well. So this is definitely a marked improvement. And the fact that clearly they have the race pace to still to match it as well, that makes them a pretty formidable opponent for this season. Mm-hmm. And we have Porsche that are using those powertrains, but what other team, what are their customer teams? Remind me. So yeah, the Andretti as well. But uh, of course, Jake Dennis kind of boo-booed his uh, last qualifying lap in the uh, in the group stages. So he didn't even get to advance into the, the duels, which kind of set up a, a very difficult start to his title defense. Definitely unfortunate to see in that aspect. So one of the things that I found interesting, sort of halfway paying attention to qualifying, uh, was was the change in track temperature throughout the day. It, it got much hotter later. And it, it seemed to me, I don't know if you noticed this, Chris, that the some of the drivers that did well earlier when it was cooler didn't do as well later when it was hotter. And I wonder if you think that might have had something to do with uh, the pronounced success of Pascal Verline and, and uh, qualifying. Well, of course, when you're setting the car up uh, and it, when you start the day in FP2, it's very cold. The track is still incredibly green. So you have to second guess what the conditions are going to be like by the time you qualify and indeed by the time you end up racing. So if the car feels fantastic in FP2, it's, it's likely it's not actually going to feel that great by the time qualifying and the race uh, roll around. So you're having to anticipate those conditions. And I think that's why we see some of that fluctuating performance. They also had all of the sessions today weirdly early it felt like because when we were in portland last year we had fp2 starting at 10 a.m and everything else being later in the afternoon with warmer temperatures overall and more steady temperatures 
But with this one, to accommodate, I'm guessing, European times and et cetera, et cetera, they, uh, they had FP1, sorry, FP2 starting at, what, 7 a.m.-ish? And then the race was yeah. done by early afternoon local time. Yeah, and even if they start the day that early, you tend to get bigger gaps between sessions um, as well. And yeah, I do think it's sort of trying to accommodate the, the time schedule a little bit because we've had you know, the Mexico City race in the past, starting at like 11 o'clock here in the, the UK. So definitely, I think they're trying to yeah, capitalize on that that Saturday night audience there in Europe. Absolutely. But enough about qualifying for now. Let's get into the race itself. We had Verline as our winner, Buemi in second, and Nick Cassidy jumping in to grab that final podium position. Now, important to note, Verline is currently still under investigation for a potential technical infringement. So if all of a sudden we have an interruption, that is what it may be. So fingers crossed, we find out during the show because that always makes things a little bit interesting. But overall, we did have a fairly interesting, well, semi-interesting battle between Verline and Buemi. Yeah, semi. Well, it, it was good initially. I am keeping my eye on Twitter, by the way, just in case, for that uh, investigation, because it's not just Verline, it's all the Porsche-powered uh, cars. So the fact that they're all from the same manufacturer and it's for a technical infringement, it's not giving me a lot of hope uh, for them. And I do think it did play out in the the battle between Verline and Bohemi, because he said after the race, there wasn't really much point in me risking uh, a move on Verline, knowing he's under investigation, there might be a chance that he's going to get disqualified after the race. And maybe you don't want to throw it up the inside of someone and, and do like that big risky move in the first race of the season. I'm sitting here in furious agreement with Chris because <laughs> I think, although it wasn't obvious that um, Boemi would have had a great shot uh, going for a move, I think he settled quite early on on banking that second position. And I think he said as much in his post-race interview. Uh, yeah, especially after. I, th- I think he had a mistake early on, um, around lap 15 or so, just after the safety car. And he just gave Veriline a nice gap, like a multi-second gap. And I think from that point on, the team was like, just conserve your energy and just keep it in between the white lines. Uh, bring it home in one piece. Because, well, you know, it's Formula E. <laughs> They're under investigation. So... You've probably got a better chance of winning by technical infringement than you do trying to make a pass at this particular track. And by the time the the championship gets settled in in London in July, we might know who's won this race. Uh, Going by Formalese's previous um, standards, I remember I've heard horror stories of journalists having to stay in the media center until like 11 p.m. midnight, one race in uh, Hong Kong, waiting for uh, results of uh, an an investigation. But there was... um, a, a bit of a to and fro between them in the early stages with the attack mode, as we often see, um, so because Verline decided to pull that gap and he only lost the place to Bohemi when he took his first uh, attack mode. And I was expecting it to play out a, a, a little bit differently to what it did because we saw Verline go for the shorter attack mode stint initially. Bohemi went for the longer one. Maybe he could try and attack a little bit later. When the roles were reversed in the sort of second round of attack mode, we then had that safety car, which lost Verline the end of his attack mode um, usage. So he lost that extra power effectively for two two to three minutes. uh, And that locked Buemi into the lead, but he still had an attack mode uh, remaining. And the the issue with attack mode 
usually is that even though you've got this extra power, it's quite difficult to actually kind of harness it and use it because because you're using more power, it means you're using more energy. So you have to lift a little bit earlier as well, do a bit more lifting coast, even if this isn't the most energy intensive race uh, on the calendar, it, it does still play out um, that way. And of course, we say it about Mexico City every time Formula One goes there, the slipstream is not incredibly uh, powerful because of the altitude. One thing that I think may have played into this this lead battle or lack of it is also that if you look at the look at the results sheet, Buemi is a bit of an outlier. If you looked at this as a last year result, that'd be quite an unusual thing to see Buemi up so high. He's probably not um, not too keen to to do anything to risk uh, a front of the grid finish when you see his results last season. And you've got Verline, whose season obviously tailed off towards the end of last year, but who was still you know a championship contender until near the end and Cassidy who obviously was was right at the front in that championship fight Buemi is kind of newly back to the front Chris you were saying just before the start if this penalty does come for Verlein if that if Porsche get nerfed then it's going to be Buemi's first win for five years which doesn't seem doesn't seem real because I always tend to think of him as a front runner so yeah do you know it, it would be Sebastian Buemi's luck to take his first win in five years as a result of somebody else being disqualified and taking away that glorious moment uh from him but yeah I know you mean he had some really difficult seasons at Nissan and then last year we did start to see the old Sebastian Buemi start to come back when he moved to uh Envision and obviously played a big part in them winning the team's championship uh so he he is getting back into that uh that that position of fighting for the win and fighting for podiums on a on a more of a regular basis. Uh, and uh, he was kind of on his own at, uh, on on this occasion as well. Maybe that's played a role in it as well, because normally he would have uh, Cassidy last season when he was at Envision uh, kind of alongside him. They were very evenly matched, sometimes to the detriment of the uh, team and each other's performance, given how much they were at loggerheads uh, with each other. Um, but Did the, you guys yeah, catch the, the moment wasn't... at the end of the race right. where Buemi went to go shake Cassidy's hand and he just ignored it? Oh, I missed that. No, wow. That doesn't yeah. surprise what? me at all. Was there drama in a Formula <laughs> E race? No, tell us more, Christina. <laughs> right. Oh, so. just, just a smidgen. But you know, what else is new in Formula E if you don't get that little bit of drama from them? That was That was one thing I will say. I was minorly disappointed with this race as a whole was that it didn't feel... Like we got as many, you know, spicy radio messages. It didn't feel like they were overall getting as aggressive with each other as it was possible. And with Verline and Buemi, it makes sense to the extent that that penalty is hanging over one of their heads. But for everybody else, what's their excuse, Matt? Well, the thing that that, that really struck me most, and, and and to be fair, you know, having watched Formula E, you know, uh, over the years for for a while was that that I've never seen a driver be as defensive as Mitch Evans and get away without somebody smashing into the back of them at some point. So I don't know, has, has Vern finally matured to, to the point where he just was like, well, I'll, I'll pick up an extra place with the penalty. So it's just not worth the, the, the challenge. Or, or was there something else at work here? Well, in fairness, I think it's ever since Gen 3 came in, the, the car is I mean, deliberately a bit more brittle, particularly in uh, front end to rear end contact, because we saw it all the time in Gen 2, 
where it's just be like, I'm just going to push my guy in front out of the way a little bit and do a bit of a sort of touring car style bump and run. And that often led to broken rear wings and rear tire punctures and all sorts of calamities and problems that became kind of a staple of the Gen 2 era. So is that uh, so- actually deliberate, Chris? Is that fragility of the front end deliberate? Because I heard that teams weren't that happy with it and that we're looking to strengthen the front end um, with the Evo for next year. Well, uh, maybe we'll see what happens with the the Evo or Gen Beta or whatever it is they're going to end up calling it. Uh, but so I think I think the design of the car has kind of been it, it's been designed so that we see a bit less of that. Uh, in fact, uh, so if we if we beef up the front end, it means we've got to beef up the rear end as well. And we know that these cars are already pretty beefy. We were talking about it during the race, actually, that these cars are small, but they're not light. They're quite mm. heavy and that means that in crashes they can carry a fair bit of momentum because they're so dense yeah and that's because of the batteries so you know the batteries are inherently kind of heavier than internal combustion engines so a formula one car these days is somewhere in the region of 850 kilos with a full tank of fuel uh, maybe a little bit more than that um as well because they got they got a bit heavier during the um during the ground effect uh, era, but a, a Formula E car obviously it kind of stays the same weight from you know lights out to checkered flag because it's got no fuel in it. Obviously, maybe it loses the weight of a couple of electrons by the end of the of the race. Uh, but they're they're nine hundred kilos standing, including the driver, and a significant portion of that weight is obviously towards the the rear end. So when the back starts to go, that's why we see like these big monster moments. So, you know, it's not because well, not just because they're on those skinny road tires uh, as well, but they really tend to go with like big momentum swings because of all that weight at the rear end. And that was what led to Frines losing his rear end and having that safety car come out. Is that what we're assuming? Or are we assuming that it was that slightly different surface that it was on? Because that was on the part of the track that had that light coloring. Yeah, but the, it's, yeah it's different because it goes from asphalt to concrete back to asphalt uh, again. But I have a theory. And I, I caught it from the initial glimpse and then that rear facing shot we got. It doesn't 100% confirm it, but I think when he, I can't remember who he was passing um, because they went through the attack mode, but I think he's just, just clipped the front wing of that other car and it sliced his rear tire because it doesn't, it, it doesn't look like, a, oh, I've lost the back end moment. It just goes, right? I mean, Brad, you're a racing driver. You know what that feeling's like. Yeah, so I, I had exactly the same hunch when I watched that footage um, and I watched it as closely as I could with the streaming service that was available to me, which didn't have a, a rewind function. And the only thing I'd say to counter that, that might pour some cold water on on that hypothesis, is that it, it the rear went very suddenly and it was a right-hander and it would have been his, his right rear tire that was cut if it if it was cut. Um, and so it, it would seem a little strange for the unloaded tire to cause that sudden drop. It looked to me like a left rear suspension failure from the severity of it. Um, but that's a very, very similar look to an accident caused by driving on a dusty, marbly, slippery surface, which could also have caused it. You'll know for sure if the team come out and say, yes, the right rear tire was cut. But we just spoke about how fragile the front wings are on these cars. And there was no damage, seemingly, to the car behind front wing. So 
I still think the jury's out on that one. I don't think you're necessarily wrong there. And like I say, I did also consider that as a possibility. But Freinz's response, he didn't say he was hit. He said, I don't know what happened there. And that's generally the kind of thing a driver says when it might have been their fault. Well, just watching it, you can see the exit from attack mode uh, messing very clearly with the line that Freinz, Freinz wanted to take through that complex. And we know that, uh, I mean, there was no support series. There's nothing else going on there. So being even the slightest bit offline, just getting the tire cold, getting it covered with dust, you're going to the outside tire and you have the added disadvantage of all that weight being in the back, meaning that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, well, you will do that regardless, but that, that under braking the rear really has a tendency to want to come around, even if the car isn't set up in a particularly oversteery way in terms of the suspension. Um, and so being distracted by that momentarily, being slightly offline, means that the braking he expects to have and the braking he actually gets may not match in real life. And there's no, there's no runoff there. There's no, there's no escaping that inevitability in that instance. So to me, that's, that's just like one of those unfortunate things where you get put off your rhythm a little bit and then, and then there's no, no way for you to recover it. The only thing I'd say there is I'm pretty sure that's an acceleration zone that he was going through there, but still the same, the same things you described there could also cause that an acceleration zone because these cars have extremely high torque they spin the wheels very easily and it only takes a little bit of a a different um, level of grip to what you're expecting and the amount of throttle or i don't know how they describe it in terms of um, electric throttle uh, energy <laughs> request the amount torque of demand en- the amount of torque, torque demand demands. you put through that pedal will quickly overcome those Hankook tires so mm-hmm. and, and the weight we discussed earlier is going to then carry you with your momentum towards the wall and of course, those Hankook tyres, considerably less grippy than the old Michelin's uh, as well. It's part of the reason why Gen 3 isn't quite the leap up in performance in terms of lap times uh, compared to Gen 2. Um, but uh, Matt, the point on attack mode there, because the lines meet each other at some point, yeah, the racing line and the attack mode line. And that's kind of n- the nature of the beast when it comes to attack mode really there's always going to be that that pinch point where they come together and we have seen drivers just get completely shunted into the wall when yeah, they come it, out well, it's, it's like pit exit isn't it like once you get once you get past there and you're past the the you're past the line if you're both at the same trying to occupy the same patch of asphalt at the same point you know someone's going to lose out there and it just looked like to me uh, whether it was a distraction or an actual change of trajectory, that uh, Freens was the one who lost out. They need a Monaco Grand Prix style like board there, don't they? Well, you know that board at Monaco that tells you a car's coming out of pit lane, so you've got to stay <laughs> yeah. left? They it's like that. those driveways with the uh, mirrors at the end of them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. And I mean, that crash really was kind of the end of already the start of a bad day for Freins because he was the car as well. The bright green one that you cannot miss, just dropping down at the start. He went starting in, let me double check this. I had this open just for this purpose, and now it's reloading. But he started up in seventh and then dropped easily down 10 positions right off the start. 
And Joy, he probably should have started higher as well, but he made a mistake in the uh, the quarterfinal duel. Yeah, he uh, had a total off, didn't he? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, Envision confirmed there was an issue with the car at the start, which caused uh, him to drop so many positions. So maybe that had a role in his race-ending crash uh, as well. But, um, yeah, not a great start to life back at Envision for Robin Frines, for sure. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm going to bring this up because um, the I think the last race I went to was the one where Andre Lauderer had the the false start for the champ when Jeff was in for the championship, the jump start. And I asked him about that. And and you know, I, coming from following a lot of Formula One, I understand that start procedures can be relatively complex, but not in Formula E. And I asked him this question, and I'm like. Well, you know, but, you know, how complicated is it really to start the car? And he looked at me and he just went, well, you just push a button and step on the pedal. And yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> no oh, clutch. I, I'm sorry I asked you that question because it's causing you pain. So genuine question here from someone who's obviously never driven a Formula E car. Um, my assumption is that they just accelerate because electric cars, that's, that's how it works. Is there any uh, brake holding button uh, the reason i ask is because i have driven race cars where you you essentially um can hold the brakes on with a button on the steering wheel um that's how it be that's how the btcc car worked at the start so that you could then effectively lean on the car you know accelerate a little bit uh, in my case obviously you're slipping the clutch in order to kind of um, start to tug at the um at the the beginning of the race so that when you release the brakes the car launches i was wondering whether that's a thing but i guess the the equivalent is just putting your left foot on the brake because they don't have a clutch obviously to to use i will ask one of the drivers that i good to, to know later in the year about this very topic because mm-hmm. i do want to do one where we just like you know talk to me about the start talk to me about what you're doing in the braking zone with pulling the regen paddle and all these uh things like that so that is a question i will pose to it someone. may well literally just be as we were just discussing accelerate yeah. when it when the lights go out left foot on the brake. that eye racing style where they just like floor both pedals so yeah very interesting questions for us to delve into later but the thing i want to ask Frines obviously wasn't the drive, the only driver that had a slightly tragic day. Who would everybody vote for for having the most Formula E day at Formula Ooh. E? That's Do a really good ha- question. Yeah. Well, it's... of course, Sergio Sete Camera didn't even start the race. No, he had a, a technical issue, I think, is as much information as we've gotten. So he's a good I, contender I hate for that. that. Term. There's also. I hate that term. Um, who else? Degrassi had Degrassi. a break issue. Yeah. Degrassi he's had not a break issue. One. Uh, was it Finestra has also was talking about break temperatures. And, and so again, with the altitude, you begin to wonder if maybe some teams got their brake ducts just a little bit wrong and that caused issues for the drivers. Yeah, when he when he came on the radio though, and he said they were two hundred, I'm assuming he's talking about two hundred degrees Celsius, which feels like it's on the cooler side. Uh, so don't know if they were too cold or something like that, but yeah, I mean, it didn't seem to have come up later in the in the race. Um, but yeah, Degrassi brake issues there. He didn't he crashed it at the end of qualifying as well. So that's not a a, a great day mm-hmm. uh, for him. Well, he crashed, and then I think it was hit the boards that he blew off the wall that then Dan Tictum ran into. 
Yeah. You got so, such a Dan Tictum radio message out of. Another, another great one to add to the list. Another one yeah. where Dan Tictum says he's going to hang his boots up and give up the sport and then comes Holds back it a joke. two weeks later yeah. to do it a day. I somehow managed, managed to miss this. Uh, I think I was having some kind of issues listening to radio calls. My feed wasn't really, if it was giving them, it was giving them very delayed and sometimes very quiet. So could you just let me know in case any of the other listeners had the same problem as me? What what did Dan Tictum say? This was in qualifying. So if you if you did miss it. Uh, um, that's why. Okay. This should, yeah, yeah, so that's why you this should be a feature of this show is what did Dan, Dan Tictum say this week? Yeah, um, what did Dan Tictum say this week? There will always uh, be something. No, so Degrassi crashed in qualifying, hit the Tech Pro and knocked a piece of the Tech Pro onto the track. And Tictum was the car behind and he yeah, hit Tictum's on the racing line. Uh, and he, he goes, oh, I'm so fed up of this sport. Like he always says. Yeah, have my butler bring the car around. I'm leaving immediately after the session. Yeah. Okay, Sprinkle some colorful language. The Honestly. thing that intrigued me most about that qualifying was the comment from the McLaren engineer after watching Sam Bird not progress, which was unrepeatable on this show, <laughs> and made me wonder, like, like no one, no one said anything about it, but did did oh. he wind up getting caught in the yellows there that Degrassi no. caused, or was it something else? No, he missed the checkered flag, so oh. they they started the run too late and didn't get the final lap in. That's why. He was, okay, so that's not uh, going to necessarily be a Sam problem then. No, no, no. That's a that's a team mismanagement there, unfortunately, yeah. or or uh, dilly dallying too much in the yeah, like miscommunication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we always yeah, because traffic always, was really bad in both the groups, wasn't it? Well, it, it, it's always going to be because it's they they tend to be short circuits, and because yeah. you always want to be the last car over the line. Because you know, I know we talk about it in Formula One how the track evolution happens, but informally, it's genuinely like one car going over the racing surface makes a massive difference to the point where they, they really do want to be crossing the timing line with like one second left uh, so that they can get the best track conditions. So uh, yeah, that's, that's part it's an of easy one there. to get wrong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll tell you, we, we haven't talked about uh, De Costa and Muller uh, actually, because it's, I mean like fair enough. Muller was you mean a bit, De Costa uh, Muller Muller. Hey, hey! Uh, or as Carl would say, went full wang into <laughs> into the side of Muller. No, he went half. That was the problem. He yeah, went well, half wang into the corner. Do you know what? In fairness, because we only saw the one angle of it, and I haven't overanalyzed it. I don't know if Muller kind of turned in on on De Costa, or whether De Costa was making too late a lunge or something like that. Oh, it seems oh, a bit. Oh, I think Brad has an opinion. It just looked like a bit of a half-hearted lunge. It was one yeah. of generally. If it ends up with contact that damages the the front suspension of the attacking car and clips the rear of the car in front, even if at some point they were a bit further alongside, the fact that they've felt the need to back out to that extent means it probably wasn't ever really on. Otherwise, you'd you'd stay in there and take the full side to side contact and kind of back yourself to to at least come out with less damage. But yeah, that that kind of chopping the nose off of the car that's going for the move tends to suggest it wasn't a great move attempt. And that, that's what it looked like to me. The pressure's on De Costa already because he had a really poor qualifying while he was down in that position in the first place and he's come away with zero points, whereas Pascal's, you know, apart from the fastest lap point, you know, he's almost maxed out this um, event and got his championship charge already underway. 
So at the risk of, of jumping ahead to potentially a topic that Christina may have been about to move on to at some <laughs> point, um, what do you think about the other, uh, the title contenders we would have expected to be up there with Verline? The, I guess Cassidy was up there, but yeah. the others like, like Dennis, um, who else would we have said? Um, had the Jaguar a and the Porsche yeah, cars. Mitt, were Mitt Jevons as well. Yeah. What do you think about, Will they be worried at where they ended up or are there reasons that they can all point to and say, ah, and Mexico is a bit of a specific circuit? It's one round. Um, I mean, we saw in season uh, seven, I, th- I think it was, Porsche came to Mexico City, absolutely dominant, one to finish and then barely scored points for the remainder of the season. So I'm not expecting that kind of drop off but we saw such a to and fro between the Jaguar and the Porsche teams with a, a smattering of the the DS Penske's and the Maserati's throwing their hat into the ring on occasion as well and I expect to see the exact same thing uh, as well because um, Gunther was was right in there for the podium fight uh, as well. I wanted to ask about Gunther as well because I personally wasn't expecting any of the Stellantis cars to feature that heavily and the fact that he was up there especially with the turmoil that's gone on at Maserati MSG over the winter um, losing losing key staff members. I thought that that car would be, well, in fact, one of the Maseratis would be like one of the lower Stellantis cars and he ended up being the, the highest finisher and actually was challenging cars with powertrains that I would have expected to be quite a long way ahead. So does this maybe show that we've got a closer fight among all the manufacturers this year? Because you also had some, the, obviously the McLarens weren't quite as strong as 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 you'd like it'd be nice if there were some nissan powertrains further up but they're not that far off there there's kind of a good mixture uh, you know you've got a, a mclaren and three stellantis cars ahead of both andretti's and that isn't a thing you would have seen towards the end of last season so it kind of feels like and again maybe it's a mexico specific thing but it kind of feels like maybe there's a more of a close a more closely matched field in terms of the different manufacturers yeah, definitely. We're in the second year of a two-year homologation cycle with the powertrains. So all the hardware is exactly the same as it was at the end of the season in, in London. Um, uh, but So the development that's happened has been on like, the setups of the cars and in the software. Uh, so naturally, I think the field is going to compress um, a little bit. And for the Stellantis cars, you know, they've got a bit more room for improvement. So yeah, they can be a little bit um, closer um, in there. And, you, you know, I think I think Maserati didn't quite play the strategy quite right because they they got given a, a little bit of a gift in in being ahead of the Jaguars on the grid because of this um, one place grid penalty that they both got for the red flag infringement in FP1 where the procedure is you have to drive your car into the garage and they didn't do that seems like a very clumsy uh, thing to do really a bit of a silly penalty to to pick up and it's the kind of mistakes that Jaguar cannot afford to make knowing that Envision are, you know, their customer team are incredibly um, uh, high performance this season. Uh, And with the Porsches operating the way they are uh, as well, they can't afford those kind of uh, mistakes. So uh, Gunther's starting up ahead of them, but the strategy kind of dropped them, dropped him back behind them as well with the the late uh, attack modes he was taking and they won track position, uh, well, with Cassidy anyway. And I mean, as much as we're talking about Jake Dennis not necessarily having a good qualifying, 
at least he had a decent recovery drive. Like he started down in 14th, he made it up to 9th. So at least he has points, which all things considered, if he's going to run a title fight, that's a silver lining at the very least. He got some points. There was him who was a big mover. And then we also had Roland. He actually went from 20th to 11th, which is pretty good. And then you'll have DeVries who moved from 22nd to 15th, but that was with four retirements. Getting I was going to say, he just, just sat so. back. <laughs> What's he going to do with that car? Seriously, we're, we're going to spend the whole season talking about Jaguars, Porsches, and the Stellantis cars because the Mahindra cars, you know, but the, the works team and the apt cars, uh, we, we've seen it is evident from, from day one already um, that they, they've still got a fundamental pace and performance issues uh, with those cars. In Nick DeVries' slight defense hopping back into the car obviously their uh preseason testing was truncated with the uh, the battery fire in valencia and then they got given a compensation test which was complete washout uh as well so this was kind of DeVries' first time getting properly back up to speed in the dry well the thing that i i would just like to mention at this point is that mexico and especially because of its altitude is such a one-off kind of a circuit that we just you just want to be careful about drawing too many conclusions about anything at this point. Number one, because your slipstream, which is much more effective at lower altitudes, means that trailing cars can't gain the efficiencies they normally gain. And number two, being at altitude means things like getting your brake temperatures right. But importantly, like just even the thermal properties of the batteries, the cooling is so much less at altitude that I don't think. I don't think we can make the kind of comparison and say like, oh, Porsche powertrains are going to run off with it yet because most of the tracks we're going to be at are not going to be at this altitude. And, you know, Porsche itself has always done exceptionally well here, which may just be a peculiarity of how they build their powertrain that's not going to translate across the whole season. Something you can definitely spot although it's not uh this isn't a circuit specific thing something you or something i personally was looking out for was jake dennis's performance because i'm going to admit here openly to being a bit of a jake dennis fan he's the guy that when i watch formula e i want to see how he's doing and how he's progressing and there were signs despite his poor qualifying there were signs of the champion dennis there there were things you could point to which would show you how Dennis went and won that championship last year. When you look through every time they showed the energy remaining, and I think that should always be up. I honestly think we should be able to see that permanently. It's, I think it's weird that we get a little glimpse of it occasionally. It's one of one of my least favorite things about the Formula E coverage. But I'll tell but, you why they don't do it is because that's how the teams see it as well. So, so what? I, I don't care. I still think we should be able to see that all the time. I think it's stupid that they hide it from us. Um, but anyway... The um the performance you could see hit there was a key thing that that Jake does. He tends to just manage to conserve more energy throughout a race and then have more at the end to use. And I was really expecting him to have a late charge, but the problem was the guys ahead of him had enough. They had enough to get to the line. Having that extra two or three percent on the final lap didn't really matter because the others had enough regardless once they went through the regen at each of the braking zones on that last lap. But 
throughout the year, the fact that Jake has managed to continue that trait into the 2024 or 2020, hang on, it is 2024 season, isn't it? It's not 23, yeah, yeah. 24. Well, hang technically on. it's called 23, 24, but we'll just call it the 24. Why? Season. Yeah, that's confusing because we I haven't had a race know. in 23. Um, the fact that Jake's able to still do that means that is something that's carried over from last year and that will pay off when he starts closer to the front, which I expect him to do more often. Um, so you can still see, despite this being a bit of a weird one and a weird race to start the season with, because it doesn't tend to follow the pattern of some of the other races for the reasons Matt just highlighted, uh, you can still see some kind of glimpses of future performance. So just kind of building on what, what Matt was saying there as well and what you were saying, Brad, because, because the, the the Porsches aren't just going to run away uh, with it because yes, a Porsche car won the race, uh, but also the next Porsche car was ninth and Jaguar cars were second, third and fifth, right? So if we had a manufacturer's championship, Jaguar would be leading that at the moment. Um, but the the air you know, density, and again, we're going to keep coming back to this because what Matt was saying about they can't uh, save in the, in the slipstream, you know, that's what they tend to do. It's, you know, it's, it's like into the Peloton racing where, the guy in second sits behind the leader, conserves a little bit of energy in their slipstream, and then deploys it later um, in the race as well. And I was surprised, Matt, that we didn't see more concerns about the battery temperature because of that lack of air cooling, which you would normally expect. Um, but it seemed like quite a cool day in general. So had it had it been slightly higher temperatures, we might have seen more of those concerns. And I think that had played into why maybe we didn't quite see as much explosive action in that race. So for me, this this was not a typical Formula E race in my experience of Formula E. For anyone who was new to Formula E, watching this as the first round of the season, I, I'm a bit sad that that's their experience because for those of us who have watched a lot of these races since the first season, um, and especially you know the race we had last year more recently, you know that that's not going to be the norm. You know we're going to have action, lots of overtaking, you're going to have interesting strategy variations and you know teams having to take into account things like you just say, you know battery temperature and other issues and circuits which are maybe easier to slipstream up behind um and make a, a late overtake. It was like a perfect storm today to not provide a particularly exciting race. As you said, maybe a cool day, so the teams didn't have to worry too much about the temperatures. Um, the fact that's in Mexico, uh, you've already mentioned a couple of times about the fact that the slipstream doesn't make as much difference. It also means the peloton-style racing doesn't have as much of an effect because you don't, you're not able to save as much energy by sitting behind other cars. And it just kind of made it a bit of a dull Formula E race in Formula E terms. So I would definitely advise anyone who who is newer to Formula E to stick with it until we get to some of the other circuits because there's a lot of a lot more excitement that tends to happen in, in a modern Formula E race. On that note, we've had one race in the season so far. It's obviously not representative, as we've said, because it's Mexico. But going into the rest of the season, what is the one thing that you could see that would just bring you the utmost joy, that would make you jump out of your chair, cheer, no matter the hour of the day you were watching it? hope for the rest of the season uh, to me like i'm just gonna jump in here because the thing that really stood out about this race to me and and with all the caveats that have already been mentioned you know the penalty to the jaguars the this the that 
the thing that stuck out to me was the gap between Cassidy's performance to Jaguar and Mitch Evans' performance at Jaguar. And I think that's going to be a big storyline to watch. Mitch will not be happy. He was, I mean, like, really, he was really fortunate. We were at this track where, you know, coming out of the Peraltada and into turn one, there wasn't a huge breaking zone because otherwise Jeff would have been by him, you know, lap 30 or so. He he got very fortunate. He was at a track where he could defend like that in a car that was more fragile than Gen 2 car that I was used to watching. Um, so I think that's a huge storyline to watch going forward. You know, I think because, because Formula is obviously very evolving sport, it changes quite dramatically normally year on year. Um, this is actually one of those seasons where not an awful lot has has changed between seasons, but um, maybe maybe Formula is getting to the point where it's outgrowing this circuit and they need to revamp it again like they did um, for the Gen 2 cars where they removed a lot of the slower chicanes. We still have one very slow chicane before they swing right into the stadium section. Maybe it's time to get rid of that uh, as well. And, you know, maybe, so they use a bit more energy on, on the straight and then we create a bigger braking zone. Oh, there, come on. You're just uh, currying well. favor with spanners getting rid of chicanes here. <laughs> in this case, I agree with them because we used to have a chicane in the middle of the Peraltada as well. And we all didn't like it. Um, neither did the drivers and nor did the spares department because there was a lot of damage caused to cars in that chicane. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, on the, the Cassidy thing, first blood to Cassidy against Mitch Evans, as you say, this is going to be the teammate battle to watch for sure. In a way, I'm not surprised to see Cassidy kind of come out the, the blocks, you know, and fire on all cylinders straight away because he's moved from a Jaguar powered customer team to the Jaguar works team. He was heavily involved in the development of this um, car and even did a lot of laps in the Jaguar simulator last season, right? So it's not the same, so to speak, as say like when with Sam Bird leaving Jaguar for uh, McLaren, because he's not only moving teams, but he's also having to learn a new powertrain as well. So it's like a complete reset, uh, right? So the the learning curve is is, is less steep for Cassidy. For sure, there are things that are going to be different. He's working with an entirely different uh, team on a day-to-day basis now um, but in terms of like the ease of transition that's about as easy as it's going to get well that is the mexico e pre so make sure you're following us on all of missed apex's social platforms all of our personal ones they will be linked down below and we will see you all after the next race and as well for special feature episodes in between we'll see you all soon